Let's turn in our Bibles now to Genesis chapter 2. text is verses 18 through 20 of the chapter, and we'll read the entirety of the chapter. Genesis 2, starting at verse 1. This is the word of God. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground. But there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from thence it was parted and became into four heads. The name of the first is Pison, that is, it which compasseth the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. There is Delium and the onyx stone. And the name of the second river is Gihon, the same as it that compasseth the whole land of Ethiopia. And the name of the third river is Hittichel, that is it which goeth toward the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found in help meat for him. And the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. 
And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib, which the Lord God had taken from man, made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. That's where we conclude the reading of God's inspired word. Let's reread verses 18 through 20. That's our text. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found in help meet for him. Beloved, in our Lord Jesus Christ, I believe that last time I was in your midst, I was preaching from this series that I have in my own church on Genesis chapters 1 to 11, and that when I was here last time, we were in the first half of chapter 1 yet. Now, in the series, we've advanced quite a bit beyond that, and now we're into chapter 2, and we're dealing with things at the end. Of that creation week. Just as a brief review, on the first day of creation, God made the heaven, earth, time, and light. Second day, he made the firmament. Third day, the dry land, the seas, and all the greenery that we see around us. Fourth day, made the heavenly luminaries, the sun, moon, and stars. On the fifth day, he made the creatures in the water, the fish and whales and so on, and also the creatures in the air, the birds. And on the sixth day, he made the land animals and also the human being, man. And now, it's on this sixth day that something else happens. Adam names the animals. We'll come back to that sequence of events in a few moments. You find, don't you, that in these early chapters of Genesis, they're so familiar to us, and how many times, even since youth, have we not read these chapters, and yet there's so much in here, so many gems. When you come to chapter 2 as well, it's like a stretch of earth where there's so many resources and minerals just under the crust. And you're digging and taking those things out. 
that's the way it is in this chapter too. Dig, and so many riches of the word of God come out for our edification. The naming of the animals is one of those passages as well. Let's consider the riches of God's word under the theme, Adam names the animals. Adam names the animals. Three points, functioning in the threefold office. Second, realizing his own incompleteness. And then third, glorifying the creator God. When it comes to the naming of the animals, there is a when. When that happened, a a sequence of events. Before this process of naming the animals, of course, the animals have already been created. Fifth day, God made the fish in the sea and the birds in the air. And we even have that recorded for us in the text. Verse 19 talks about every fowl of the air that God made out of the ground. And then verse 20, it repeats that. To the fowl of the air he gave names. So God already on the fifth day has made the sea creatures and air creatures. And also before naming the animals, God has made the creatures on the sixth day, which include the beasts of the field, the more wild animals, you might say, and the cattle, which are more domesticated, and the creeping things, all the insects and so on. You have reference in our text to God's making of the cattle and the beasts as well. Verse 19, Lord God formed every beast of the field. And then verse 20, Adam gave names to all cattle and to every beast of the field. So by the time the animals are named, God has already made all these animals. Also, before this process of naming the animals, the human being has been created. We know, obviously, that that happened on the sixth day of creation, that God made man from the dust of the earth and breathed into him the breath of life. Obviously, you don't have animals named if there's no one to name them, so there's already an Adam. But now, after the naming of the animals, God makes the woman. Now that should be evident even as we read these verses because our text has to do with Adam naming the animals, and then after our text, That's when God goes about the work of building from Adam's rib this creature called woman. So she comes after the naming of the animals. And yet, we also know that the female was created also on the sixth day. If you look back at Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. And then when you drop down a few verses, it makes clear that that all happened on the sixth day. So to conclude, Adam names the animals. Before that happens, the animals are made. Also, the male is made. 
and then after the naming of the animals, the female is made, and the naming of the animals takes place on the sixth day of creation. Now, I point this out not only to give you a little bit of context and the sequence of how things are going, but also to show you that our God always works in an orderly way. Made that point over and over in Genesis chapter 1. Why does God create in the order that he does? Because he's wise and it has to be that way. Why did God do it the way he did it here? Making the animals first? Well, because if you don't have animals, you can't name them. And if you don't have a man, you have no one to name the animals. And also that the female is made after the naming of the animals is also in God's orderliness and wisdom. We're going to notice later that God uses this process of animal naming to awaken in Adam his need for a mate. God's going to use the naming of the animals for that. So it must be that the female is created after this whole process. Our God is so wise. When it comes to the naming of the animals, there's not only a when, but there's a what. What did Adam name? Well, obviously, animals. You read some examples of them in verse 19. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air. And then verse 20, And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. If you read observantly chapters 1 and 2 side by side, you'll realize that the animals in our text tonight are fewer than the animals mentioned in chapter 1. Did Adam just name some animals and maybe exclude quite a few others? And probably the answer is no. He did name all the animals, but we just have a few examples in our text. The Holy Spirit is not giving us an exhaustive list here. But there were many. I tried to imagine what this looked like and what this was like think about it you have beasts of the field you have cattle you have the birds of the air and then when you go to Genesis 1 it mentions even more animals all these different categories and within each category they're all different kinds of animals when you add that all up Adam must have been very busy it must have taken some time many animals and many varieties of them and even though the text does not tell us this it must have been that these creatures came in pairs and we'll get to why that is that we say that so a male and a female giraffe come before Adam and a male and a female of the cattle come before him. And then a couple of eagles, male and female, they're coming in pairs with their mates. When it comes to the naming of the animals, there's a when. 
there's a what he named, but now this. What does it really mean that this first man, Adam, named these creatures? Well, I think you see that there's a whole big process here. First of all, God made them, and our text references that. By the word of his power, he spoke, and all of these animals were there. But when he made them, there were not yet at that point any names for the animals. And we read this in the text, verse 19. And the Lord God brought them unto Adam. Literally, according to the original language, the Lord God caused these animals to be brought to Adam. And the Holy Spirit emphasizes that. This is God's work of doing it. He is the one who brings them to Adam. In such a way now that they're, you might say, collected or gathered in one area so that Adam can name them. That too is something else, by the way. We can't even imagine in this fallen world with the curse how it could be that all these animals could be together. Like I said, in our sinful world, now with the curse, the cheetah lurks in the prairie waiting for that wildebeest or something to come out. He's going to chase after that and try to take it down. And when you go out on your deck in the early morning with a cup of coffee and that bird was perched there on the bird feeder, that bird is quickly going to fly away because there's a fear that the animals have of humans. And now humans go after animals and shed their blood. They go hunting animals. All of this fear, all of this bloodshed, that's the world we live in. But that wasn't the world at this point because it's before the fall. They're in paradise yet. All these animals in harmony and a peace together. No fear, no blood, no predators. Lord God caused them to be brought into Adam in this, to see what Adam would call them. The Lord brought all of them to Adam to see what Adam would call them. And that's a peculiar way of putting it, isn't it? That obviously does not mean that, well, God didn't really know what Adam was going to call the animals. And when he gave them their names, maybe the Lord took some surprise to that. I didn't know Adam would name it this and that and the other thing. You know, that's not what the text means. You know your Reformed faith, you know the scriptures, God knows all things. In fact, he has determined from before the foundation of the world every detail of everything, and the Lord knew and determined from eternity what Adam would call these animals. But the Holy Spirit puts it this way, that the Lord brought them to Adam to see what he would call them, because the Spirit is emphasizing that God used Adam as a means for the naming of the animals. He used Adam. Adam 
consciously, thinkingly, willingly is going about this process. And we'll come back to that in the third point, why that's so important that Adam is doing this consciously, thinkingly, willingly. The Lord is using him to name the animals. And that's what he did. You can understand this on a rather simple and superficial level, although it's correct, that let's say this pair of animals came in front of him and then he applied a word to them. That's their name. And then another male and female come in front of him and he attaches to these animals a name, a a string of letters. Of course that's what it means. But to go a little bit deeper... When Adam was naming the animals, he was functioning as God's prophet, priest, and king. If you go back to Genesis 1, it records the fact that God created man in his image to look like God spiritually in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Knowledge. Adam knew God. And he knew God as a prophet. God made Adam in true righteousness. He was king, Adam was, under God, and he ruled over the creation and he did God's will. And God made Adam in holiness. He was a priest to devote himself and all the creation to God. He's a prophet, priest, and king. And now as these animals are coming in front of him, that's what he's functioning as in this threefold office. I point out to you especially king and prophet. Adam's king. He rules over this creation. And he exercises dominion. He's, of course, under God. The animals... Do not name Adam. Adam names the animals because he has dominion. And also and especially he functions as prophet here. He knows God intimately, accurately, directly. He knows him. And when Adam looked at all the different parts of the creation... He could, as it were, see the handwriting of God all over it and his glory. And he came to know God by seeing his works. And now, as he's naming the animals, he's also functioning as prophet. One theologian who has now many years ago gone to glory put it this way, and I think it's a good way. The whole creation is a book. And all the different creatures in it are like words, individual words inside that book. You children know what a book looks like. You have a book, you hold it in your hand, and you open it, and it has all sorts of different words. Creation is the book. All the different creatures are the little words in that book. And Adam... Let's say this male and female animal came in front of him. Adam could look at them 
And he could read the individual word of God revealed in that animal. And when he read that individual word of God, how God was revealed in that animal, that was the name of it. He functioned as a prophet. You too, beloved, are prophets, priests, and kings. Jesus Christ died for us, spilled his blood at Calvary, and made a full atonement for all of our sins. And we are members of Christ by faith, and thus are partakers of his anointing. Remember Lord's Day 12? You are a prophet and a priest and a king. Now, be careful, because it looks quite a bit different than it did before the fall. It's much diminished, you might say. It looks very different, and yet we're prophets, priests, and kings. You have, even now, under God, dominion over this creation and also over the animals. And you, too, are prophets. And although you can't look at an animal and see that individual word of God in it like Adam could, you can see, in a general way, the power and the wisdom of God and something of how those animals reveal him. You're a prophet. Now, all that we've said about the identifying of the animals is certainly true. But if that's all the further we went, we would not nearly do justice to the word of God here. There's something more to it. God used Adam's naming of the animals to spark in Adam the realization that he's alone and that he needs a mate to complete him. What exactly that connection is between Adam naming the animals and Adam knowing that he's alone and in need of a mate, we'll come to that connection in a few moments. But for now, let's just start with verse 18, where the text speaks of man being alone and in need of a mate. Verse 18, And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. Verse 18 is the Lord talking. You might say he's deliberating within himself. He's taking counsel within himself. This isn't the first time even early in the Bible that we read of the Lord doing that. Do you know the other place where God deliberates within himself? Genesis 1 Verse 26, before he creates man, and the text says, and God said, let us make man in our own image. Triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, let us, deliberating within himself before he makes man. And that's what he's doing again here. Not good that man should be alone. Make him help meet for him. Whenever the Lord 
speaks within himself, deliberates like this, you can be sure that something very, very important is going to happen. It's like an exclamation mark pulls our chins up. Don't miss this. Something very important is about to be done. God is speaking within himself. And what he says at the beginning is, it is not good that the man should be alone. Alone. Separation. Isolation. To be alone in the sense that he's separated or isolated from a wife in marriage. And if you ask, well, how do you know that's the way it's to be interpreted? Because look at the context that follows. God makes the woman. It's not good that he should be separated or alone from a wife in marriage. It's not good that he should be alone. And isn't that striking that the Lord says that? Genesis chapter 1, how many times don't you read, and God saw all that he made, and it was good. It was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. Genesis chapter 1. And all of a sudden, our text, it is not good that man should be alone. The explanation is not, of course, that there's sin or some defect here. Of course not. But the explanation is God made the human being, he made the man with a certain purpose in mind. Go back to Genesis 1 and you'll read what his purpose is. That man should multiply and fill the earth, be fruitful. That man should have dominion over the earth and that he would subdue the earth. That is, realize the potentials of its riches. That's God's purpose with man. But without a wife in marriage, man is not fully able to accomplish that purpose for which God made him. Without a woman, of course, he can't be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And she's going to help him with dominion and subduing the earth as well. So God's purpose with man is not fully accomplished without the woman, which is why God says it is not good that man should be alone. The implication, of course, is marriage, to have a wife, is good. Parents, are we communicating that to our sons and our daughters, especially when they come to the years of discretion and grow to be teenagers? Are we holding that before them in our regular practical instruction of them ordinarily son ordinarily daughter it is not good that a man or a woman should be alone when we hold marriage before our children it's a good thing i want to pause here though because our text says it is not good for a man to be alone. But you might be aware of 1 Corinthians chapter 7 where it says that singleness is good. So how do you put those two passages together? What's the harmony of those? And I want to 
face this briefly because it gives me some opportunity to talk to the single state as well. If you'd like, you can follow with me in your Bibles at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. First Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1. Now concerning the things whereof ye wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. That's pretty clear there. And then if you drop down to verse 7, for I would, this is the Apostle Paul talking, I would that all men were even as I myself, that is, Paul was single, he was unmarried, I would that all men were even as I myself, single. So obviously, the teaching of the Word of God here is there is a sense in which singleness is good. If someone has the gift of sexual self-control, they may, of course, marry if they want, but if they have that gift, they may also choose not to get married. And you read of that gift at the end of verse 7. But every man hath his proper gift of God, one after this manner and another after that. So if you have that gift of sexual self-control, you may marry, but you may choose also not to. But if someone does not have this gift, he ought to marry. That is, make an effort toward that. Go that direction and, and pray about that. Obviously, the situation for some is that they do desire to be married, but it's not God's will for them at this time in their life to have a husband or wife, in which case God will give grace for every day and contentment to such a one. But whether one is single because they have the gift for it and choose to be, or whether they desire marriage but it's just not God's will for them right now, the single state is good. You just can't escape from that here in this chapter of Scripture. And I just want to say for a moment that it's good, and you'll read this in the later part of the chapter, because the single state allows for someone more fully to serve the Lord and go about the things of his kingdom. Married people do too, but they're married and they have children usually, but a single usually has more time to devote to these things of the Lord, and that's why it's good. We look at our congregation, and perhaps we see those in the unmarried state. Be thankful for them. What a precious, important part of the body of Christ they are. And for those who are unmarried, this isn't a state of life to say, well, I guess I'll just grit and bear it day by day. I don't really like this. But to embrace it to the full and be joyful, I have a fuller opportunity to serve the Lord. But the question still stands, doesn't it? Our text, it is not good that a man should be alone. 1 Corinthians 7, single state, is good. So how do you put those together? In this way. 
We should understand the word of God here in Genesis 2 to mean this. Ordinarily, it is not good that a man should be alone. Or the rule is that a man should not be alone. But there are certainly exceptions to that. And so you have this incompleteness. And then the Lord in his deliberations goes on in verse 18 to say this. I will make him and help meet for him. So there's a lack. Something has to be completed. And the Lord says, this is how I'm going to fill that lack and how I'm going to make that completion. I will make him and help. Hardly even needs to be explained because we understand that word. A helper is someone who aids another person. And already here you're learning that this creature that God's going to make that we're going to learn is a woman, a wife, in marriage, is not the head of her husband. She's a helper to him and she's made for him. He's the head. But she's going to be his aid precisely in being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth and in having dominion over the earth and in subduing the earth with all of its riches. She's going to help him in so many different ways. Wives, you think of yourselves as this. Are you conscious of this day by day? And husbands, do we think of our wives in this way too? They are an aid to us. So many ways, not just bearing children, not every couple bears children. That is one of the ways. But the decisions that you make together, the discussions that you have with each other, just going about all the callings as a prophet, priest, and king that God has given to you in the earth. What a wonderful, beautiful aid is a wife in marriage. I will make him and help meet for him. Meet. Sometimes we say that as one word, help meet. But when someone says it as one word, I think that betrays a misunderstanding of what it means. There are actually two words separated with a space, and the word meet means someone who is fit, someone who is suitable. And that's what the woman is to the man in marriage. She fits him like a puzzle piece to another puzzle piece. She's made in such a way that she's suitable for him. Sometimes we men call our wives our other half. And that's a great way of speaking. That's the idea. She completes the man, completes her husband. She's meat for him. Animal does not fit man. And Adam must have come to realize that too. None of these animals are suitable for me. Now, he didn't know what creature would be suitable for him yet. How would he have? But he knew it wasn't an animal. The one who fits him has to be a human being. So there's some sameness. But also has to be a different kind 
of human being. What we'll come to see is a female. Fits that man physically, emotionally, even in the way that she thinks and the way that she processes things. She's suitable to the man and made for him and is his other half. And that's our experience even now in marriage, isn't it? People of God fit together like two puzzle pieces, husband and wife. I think it's good for us, husbands especially, to remember the way God created the woman. Sometimes a man can become frustrated with his wife exactly because she processes things differently than he does. And the way she is emotionally is quite a bit different. And he can look at his wife and become somewhat annoyed with her, maybe even become a little bit bitter. And yet, we husbands forget then. God made her that way. She's different. She is going to be different from you emotionally. She is going to think differently than you and have different processes in the way she deals with things. That's the glorious creation of God. And rather than be bitter and annoyed, we ought to rejoice when we go home tonight. What a creature God has made and fit for me. By the way, really can't pass this by without calling attention to the folly of so-called homosexual unions today. A man does not fit with a man. And a woman does not fit with a woman. God made the female for the man, meat for him. So God says it's not good for a man to be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. I will bring him his completion. And I will do that after I make the man. And I will make this creature for the man. But let's not overlook the spiritual purpose of God here. This man and his wife, Adam and Eve, together in this intimate union, and Eve fits her husband, Adam, is a picture of the covenant relationship that God had with them. Intimate covenant relationship and friendship. And God's purpose with Christian marriage today is that it should be a picture of Christ and the church. Intimate union between the head, Jesus, and his body, the church. Close, warm, intimate fellowship between the bridegroom and the bride. Christ and his church. And now think of this relationship in terms of the text. Adam was made first and not the woman. And also in God's plan, his counsel, Christ is first, not the church. 
And think of it this way, too. The woman was made for the man and not the man for the woman. So also, Christ does not exist for and serve the church, but the church exists for and serves Christ. He's redeemed her. He's her head. She serves him. You see all the text. Even early on in history, God's spiritual purpose in doing what he did. It's a picture. And it's good, isn't it, beloved, that we would leave this place and be very conscious of that every moment of our marriage as husbands and wives. This is, even if just faintly, a picture. And whether we are married or unmarried, we believers are part of this intimate, pleasure-filled, rich relationship with Jesus Christ. Man is alone. He needs the completion. God will fill that lack by giving him a helper fit for him. But how is the naming of the animals now connected to that? God used that process of bringing the animals before Adam to awaken in him the fact that he is alone and he needs a mate. You might wonder... Wouldn't Adam have just known that? Why did God have to make him realize that? Well, Adam wouldn't have known in answer to that. He wouldn't have known that he needed a mate. And even what kind of mate that would be. Because God had just created him and he never had a woman before. Adam didn't. He never had a wife, so he had nothing to reference. How would he know that he needed one? And especially, how would he know that he needed a woman? He didn't know those things, so the Lord had to bring him to see that, and he did that by bringing these animals before him. And so, when these two giraffes would come, male and female, and when these two eagles would come, male and female, and so on, eventually he thought to himself, they all have each other. I don't have anyone. Verse 20 at the end says, But for Adam there was not found in help meet for him. And you should understand that from Adam's point of view, he comes to realize that. All of this is for the glory of God. All of it. Now I want to show you that in two ways. First of all, God had Adam name the animals for God's glory. That's what it was for. You remember that little detail we put a bookmark in a, a, a while ago? God used Adam as a means in his hand to name the animals. And we said... Adam did that willingly, consciously, thinkingly. He's not a robot. He's not a puppet. But he stands before those animals and has dominion over them. And he names them as the king for the glory of God who's over all. And he stands there as a prophet, consciously, willingly, looking at each of those animals, reading the individual word of God revealed in them, and saying, this is the name. 
but he doesn't do that as an end in itself, but for the glory of God. This is what these animals reveal about his glory. That's what it's all about. And when it comes to you, prophet, you, priest, you, king, as you exercise dominion and you look about all the creatures and function as a prophet, that's not an end in itself. You do so for his praise. And that's true of you students in school, too. But in the second place, Adam glorified God. And it happened in this way. Went through this whole process of bringing all these animals in front of him, and he names them. And we've already made the point that God was awakening in Adam this realization that he's alone and in need of someone else. And God not only does that, so that when he does bring the woman to Adam, he appreciates her, he knows what it is to be alone, and now God has made this creature, and he will now treat her rightly, because God brought him through all that process. That's true. But God has him name these animals, and God awakens in him his need for a mate, so that when God does make the woman and does bring her before him, and Adam for the first time lays his eyes upon this woman that the Lord has brought to him, he glorifies God for her. He knows what it's like not to be with his other half, and now that the Lord has provided it, and in such an intricate, wise, beautiful creation, just right for him, what can he do? But praise the Lord who has made her. Husbands, in the very preaching of the word tonight, may God impress upon you as you go back up this aisle and go home the fact that your wife is a helper made for you. And then get on your knees before you go to bed and thank him and praise him for your wife, whom he has made, a beautiful creation and a gift for you. And glorify him, husbands and wives, and singles too, for the beautiful picture that Christian marriage is of Christ and his church. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, all glory be to thy name alone, both now and forever. In the first paradise, and also now as we, thy redeemed, regenerated creatures, prophets, priests, and kings, and also in that second and better paradise to come, our powerful and wise, glorious creator God, and the God of our salvation. Hear us, Father, forgive our sins. In Jesus' name, amen.